Today will be the first men's Bible study at 5 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, let's turn to 1 Samuel, and chapter 17, please. I just come this morning, Holy Spirit, knowing that there is a word that you want to share. I just put myself aside and just say, Holy Spirit, only you can accomplish what you want to accomplish. Only you can say what you want to say. So I surrender myself in this moment. I haven't read the book yet. It's on my to-read list. But a man named Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called David and Goliath. And um, I was flipping through relevantmagazine.com. They just have a blog roll. And I saw a video that was posted of a talk he had given. Um, and he was discussing the story of David and Goliath, some of the things that he had learned and researching, because the premise of his book, David and Goliath, that he had written, was um, a study of why youngest children and, and people with disabilities, like people with dyslexia and things like that, ADD, have a tendency to reach higher places in things like corporate society than older children or that, that other people do. And he thought leading into it, it was going to be kind of this David and Goliath or underdog kind of story, that it would that it caused them to fight harder. But as he researched the story, he discovered that, and it was a revelation to me as I listened, that you know, David and Goliath is not the underdog story that we have made it. It has become, in our kind of nomenclature and the way we speak, it has become the quintessential underdog story. We often say it was a true David and Goliath kind of situation. You know, I'm sure every one of us in this room has either said that or thought that. But a lot of medical researchers have studied and, and believe that Goliath suffered from the syndrome, I can't pronounce his actual name, but what we call giantism now. Um, and what giantism is, I believe, and I'm going to, if I say this wrong, I'm sure someone will correct me, but it's a, a failing of the pituitary gland to slow its production. And so someone just continues to grow their, their entire life. Um, one of the things that it causes is double vision and a loss of vision. So there's places in this story, and we'll, we'll read it here in a second, where Goliath says, come near to me, draw near to me. It's because he can't see David. It talks about um, how Goliath had to be led down into the valley of Shechem by his attendant. It's kind of commonly believed in medical circles. He just couldn't see to get himself down the hill. It talks about David coming down into the valley and says, you're coming to fight me with sticks, which David as a shepherd would probably have likely been carrying as one shepherd's cane. So there's just these subtle clues in the text that refer to this. But let's start and, and pick up the story because what I really want to discuss this morning is repentance. And so... It's kind of an odd place to begin to discuss repentance, but I, I think in a moment as we begin to understand David and, him, and, and David's heart and David, his weaponry in this moment, we'll, we will begin to view the, the story differently. But let's just start reading in, in verse 1 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shechem, which belonged to Judah, and pitched between Shaco 
And the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto him, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul, choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. And if he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. What Goliath has set up here in this moment is kind of a winner-take-all kind of situation. If I win, then you lose the whole war. If your man wins, we lose the whole war. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man went among him for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle, and the names of these three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening, presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now thy brethren and ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand. And look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the hosts were going forth to the battle, and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in hand, in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. 
And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So right there, I'm glad we kept reading. One of the things that we perceive about David is he knows the Lord. He has killed a bear. He has killed a lion with his bare hands. He knows the power of the living God within him. And as this story continues, David says, I will fight him. He knows the Lord. He's been prepared for this moment. He says, I will fight him. I will go before this Philistine. And everyone looks, says, you're tiny, man. You're the youngest of your sons. At least wear the king's armor. And he puts on the king's armor, and it doesn't fit. And he's like, I can't fight in this. So he throws off the armor, and we know the rest of the story. He picks up five smooth stones and enters the battle with Goliath. What we don't understand about David and about his sling is that there was a group of fighters called the slingers that were part of every army that went into battle. They, they marched with the archers and were actually far more effective in battle than the archers were uh, up until about the end of the middle centuries when metal alloys became hard enough that armor became pretty sophisticated. Slingers could be very, very accurate, usually because slingers were groups of people. It talks about many accounts of kings going and recruiting these groups of people who were known as slingers to fight with them in battle. So a sling, as we describe, is not this slingshot you buy at Walmart, you know, with the two rubber pieces and the Y, and the, or you make out of a, out of a twig, when, out of a stick when you're a kid, or try to make anyway, it never goes well. But it's a piece of leather or other thing that could be folded in half and hold a stone, hold a projectile, with two pieces of sinew or whatever string or rope could be attached to the end of it. So they're easy to make. But what was stunning when I heard this in the talk was that a stone leaving a sling travels at 90 meters per second. just, Just take a second to process what that is. So if I stood on one end of a football field at the back of the end zone. And Bridger stood at the other side, and he had a sling, and he flung a stone at me. That means that from the point he released it, it would be one Mississippi, bam, hitting me in the forehead. That is intense. That is, I did not understand that before that moment. And the other thing that, that blew my mind is the, the stones in the ma- middle of this valley, and I'm, I misspoke, it's the Valley of Elah, are, are a consistency that is about twice the density of normal stones. So this thing that David has flung at Goliath has roughly the same stopping power as a forty-five caliber bullet. Just by understanding the weapon that David carried, it's pretty easy. It kind of sets your mind spinning you realize we have greatly misunderstood this story because David didn't enter this valley as an underdog. David walked into this valley knowing he was going to win. He even gave himself five chances. I mean, he was throwing a stone a hundred yards out of a piece of leather he was twirling in his wrist. He gave himself five shots at it. But Goliath, you know, we've heard the expression used, um, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Well, Goliath brought a knife to a sling fight. He was greatly outgunned. 
standing there, just this giant target in the middle of a valley. And David proceeds, knowing that he has been equipped and trained well by the living God, understanding the weapons that he carried. There's accounts of slings decimating armies, decimating them, just without ever having to wave a sword. So David enters this valley knowing he's going to win. He doesn't ever have to come near Goliath. These pictures of this tiny boy holding a sword, standing with a giant over him, that picture is so false. David drew in to that valley, understanding the nature of the battle. Goliath had no understanding of what he was calling down to face him. We so often view ourselves within spiritual battles as the underdog. And we draw so near to our hurt. We come so close to our pain, the things that inflict us. We even hold, we hold it sometimes as a friend or someone who's trusted. Like that's, how, that's how we treat our pain. But what we see in this story, our pain is not our own, and we're not supposed to draw near to it. But more importantly, the weapons we are armed with to fight, to stand in an attack, are so far beyond our own understanding. David threw a stone that day. We are equipped with the name of Jesus. We are equipped with the discernment of the Holy Spirit to understand what is really going on, to understand what is happening in the places that we can't see with our eyes, and to speak the power of the name of Jesus into those places. The reason that story talks to me so much about repentance, we understand it a little differently here, but the general teaching is that it is destroying me. I'm walking in sin, and I come to a moment of great sadness. I'm really just upset that I have sinned against the Lord. I want to sin no longer, and I want to turn around and walk the other direction. Now, that picture is only kind of halfway there. There is a huge part of repentance that is the confession and desire to be rid of sin, the seeking of forgiveness. But that's the first step. What the word in Greek for repentance really means is to have a change of mind, and we've talked about this before. But the the spirit of the word means actually to change the source of your thoughts. It means to change the place your thoughts come from. So, as a real easy picture, if I'm sitting at my dining, if I'm sitting in my living room, and I stand up and I go get something out of the fridge, there was a thought while I was sitting on the couch, I'm hungry. And that motivated me to stand and go get something out of the fridge. What repentance truly does is it takes not my thought, I'm hungry, but it replaces the thought underneath, I'm hungry if that makes sense. It replaces, there was a motivation behind my first thought of I'm hungry, which was actually beyond thought of just I'm hungry. Then I thought, I'm hungry, so I'm going to go get something to eat. What repentance is, is changing the things that motivate us. Changing the things that start our thought wheels turning. That changes our desires. It changes how we view things. And it's a walk every day that we walk in. I was preparing this for two or three weeks from now, so I don't have all my analogies in order. 
One of them that I just I think of often as a worship pastor. We wonder sometimes, and, and there is a debate in the larger church, whether raising hands or, or getting on your knees or falling prostrate or if we should stand this way in prayer. There's a lot of debate about how we should act during worship times. And I was pondering this, like how does play for me, wondering about repentance. And the Holy Spirit just kind of came at me stunned. Why are you even asking these questions? I'm surprised you are putting these before me because look at him. Because look at Jesus. You know, we ponder what we should do or how we should behave when really the thing that should be motivating us is what we see in the Spirit, who we understand Jesus to be. Because it may manifest differently. I may be at one moment overwhelmed with His glory, just moved. And then in the next moment, or the next time I come before Him, moved by His mercy and on my knees or on my face before Him. But what the Holy Spirit was trying to tell me is to change my starting point. I'll come into a time of worship and I I start here and wait for the moment to go here. What he presented to me and my thoughts in that moment was, son, you should really be, this should be zero. This should be it. This isn't a move of emotion. This isn't a move of the Spirit upon me. This is a decision. And this is not motivated by a great song. This is not motivated by the right word in the right moment. This is motivated because I know who my Jesus is. And I have made the decision that I will worship him. I will reach to him like a child every time I come before him. Repentance is changing our zero point. Repentance is looking at the person in front of us, seeing the glory that God has placed within them. I uh, walked into Waterburger a week and a half ago. There's a young man that works there. His name's Aaron. Never met him before. Just read it off his tag. He's a red-haired kid. Always got a smile on his face. Always happy to see anybody that comes in. And when he's not serving somebody at the counter, he's making sure you've got the condiments that you need. And if everybody's fine, if he makes the rounds and nobody's fine, nobody's coming in. There have been several times there that he's taken out the trash and then gone out into the sidewalk to sweep the sidewalk. He's just never still. And any time he encounters somebody in that place, he was welcoming. And I just walked up to him this time and just had been thinking in days prior of these matters according to repentance. And as I saw him, something about either him or about the spirit in that moment, and I got pretty dizzy. And I stood there looking at him, stunned for a second, knowing that there was something the Lord wanted to say to him. And I just, nothing came in that moment, so I ordered and sat down and just asked the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to tell me? Tell him, what, what do you want to say to him? And he just wanted to tell him that he admired his work ethic, that he admired who he was in that place. And this young man whose countenance was a little different this day, he seemed down. I didn't tell him it was from the Lord. I didn't tell him that Jesus wants you to know this. I just told him that I notice every time I come in who he is and what he does. And the countenance that was sad that day was smiling when I left. 
That's the, that's the Lord's work. That's the eyes that are set upon God's glory first. Set upon what God wants to do first. He's called us to be a blessing to our community. It's time to not just say, Lord, I want to be good in my community and I want to be a good neighbor. But Lord, give me ideas to bless my community. What can I do? Who can I partner with to release goodness into this community? How can I speak daily into the people I work with? Show me who they are in the Spirit. Show me who you've made them to be. That's the walk of repentance. To kind of take a few steps back from where we are now. We talk, uh, and we talk about the turning and repenting of sins and the things that we've done. You know, Jesus made it a lot harder not to sin in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? I mean, it's not just doing it that makes it a sin. But if you even think the thought you've sinned, that's rough. The trouble with this teaching that if I'm just sorry for what I did and I turn and walk the other way, I actually haven't repented because I haven't removed the thoughts that produce that action. I'll walk on my own strength the other direction for a while, and it'll be good. It'll be so good with the Lord. Because that guilt I was carrying was gone. Because His forgiveness is true. He gives it freely, and I am free of the burden of those actions from before. But if the thought remains, I will grow weary at some point of of just walking on my own strength, not doing this sin, the thought being there. And I can keep going that way for a while. But there will come a moment of trouble, a moment of weakness or trial that will cause me always to return. And my 180 degree of earlier times is now another 180 when I resort to the thought that brought me pleasure before. So without removing our thoughts as they were before, there isn't true repentance. I uh, have recently been listening to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's autobiography. If you haven't listened to it or don't know who he was, he was an amazing man. He was a German theologian brought up in a very academic way. In his studies, he began to discover that there must be more to this God that I'm studying. There must be more. I read all of these things of life and of power. There must be more. And it led him to a point of actually becoming a spy involved in an um, attempt to take Adolf Hitler's life. He thought that I could not be a Christian if I did not cry out for the Jews and if I did not take action to bring about the end of their suffering. As I listen to this story, I begin to think about my own life. I begin to think about where I am and what I'm doing and the fact that it will end someday. And I'm, I'm left with one desire, and it's just to be a blessing. I just want to be a blessing. Whether I'm just being kind to the person at the store, or opening blind eyes, or sharing some disjointed thoughts that have been on my heart and mind <laughs> unexpectedly, or leading worship, or, or working as an architect, whatever he would have me do, being a husband, being a father in the future. I just want to leave behind me a legacy of blessing. I can't be that 
It is impossible for me as a man to leave that kind of legacy. It's impossible. I have bad days. I have days, I, I don't really get down on stuff around me, but I get down on me. But I am just severely inept at being the blessing that he's written on my heart to be. It's a desire from him. And this knowledge and understanding of repentance is really my only hope. To constantly be before the Lord saying, give me your eyes. Give me your heart. Give me your ears. Take away any fear. Take away anything that would prohibit me from speaking the words of love and life that you have within me. I will repent of those things. Let the blood of Jesus wash over my mind and let it wash over my heart and remove from me thoughts that aren't of the kingdom, aren't from the kingdom. Let the way I see the world originate in your heart. That's the walk of repentance. One of the things that we say often when we talk of wanting to serve the Lord is to get out of our comfort zones. We use that phrase a lot. Just in this contemplation of repentance, he has shown me that that is such a wrong phrase, such a wrong mentality. He's called the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Life in the Spirit is our comfort zone. And what we often say, get me out of my comfort zone, is something we don't discern as a spiritual battle. The struggle that I feel when I want to be obedient, and I know I feel in the pit of my gut that the Lord has put it in my heart to minister to the person standing in front of me. That, like, am I going to do it? Can I do it? That, that questioning. What kind of reaction will I get? That questioning is a spiritual battle and is the voice of the liar. If you are equipped with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, your comfort zone is in those steps of blessing. If we stop asking the questions, can I do it? Am I going to do it? Stop entertaining those. Let our answer constantly be before the Lord, yes and amen. All the promises of God and yes are yes and amen. We often take that as a claim of personal faith. Like, I'm going to stand on this. God's made me this promise. But what if you're the voice of promise in someone else's life? What if you're the bearer of that promise? My answer better be yes before the moment before the move of the Spirit on my heart. Because what if that moment passes? What if it's gone and I am still pregnant with a promise that is not my own? Our comfort zone, people, is in the life of the Spirit. The life that is repenting constantly of wrong views and asking and petitioning the Lord, show me how you see it. Teach me how you want it done. I believe that He has great things for this church to do in service to one another, but not just within these walls. This church is called to be a blessing to this community. I listened to a a sermon by Chris Vallotton out of Reading Church a couple of weeks ago, and he told a story about how he received a call uh, two years before these events took place from a guy in Australia that said, the Lord showed me that he was going to give Reading Church a building, but it was really weird looking 
It was made all of concrete and looked like a chimney. Chris Valentin said, I know that building. That was the Civic Building in Redding, California. They did some research and found out that it was losing $2 million a year, that this building was just a drain on the city. They put it before their, build, their, their committee of elders, and they said it wasn't, it wasn't time for them to have that building. When the news actually came out a couple of years later that it was losing $2 million a year, they said, now's the time for us to have this building. Now's the time of the Lord's promise. So they put together a plan of how they were going to use the building as their school and how they were going to bring in new functions, new attractions, and actually make this building profitable again, pay the city rent so that it's not a loss, and actually renovate the building with some of their own money. So they present this idea and, and submit it to the city council for a hearing. Leading up to this, a lot of voices began to come up out of the community saying, we can't allow this to happen. No way. No way can this happen. We don't want another Salt Lake City, Utah. We do not want Redding to become this like Christian town where nobody else can live. So when the day of the hearing arrived, or the Sunday before, Chris Valentin told none of their people to come. Because they're a church of anywhere from five to 8,000 people. In a city of 85,000, you can pretty much get your way a lot if you can organize those 5,000 people to show up in mass and speak in one voice. So he told them, do not show up. The only people from Reading that went were three people, Chris Valentin and two other people that he had worked on this plan with. When they showed up to the courthouse, there were hundreds of people there, hundreds, speaking out against what they wanted to do. 32 people spoke from the community. They had three minutes apiece. And they just, each one of them, same message. This is a terrible idea. We can't do this. We can't allow this to happen. We don't want Salt Lake City, Utah, in Redding, California. And finally, they were 33rd in line, and they came up and spoke. And at the end of their three minutes, a couple of slides into their PowerPoint presentation, the city council members said, tell you what, you can take as long as you need. You're the only one with a plan. So let's hear what you plan to do with it. So they spoke for 15 or 20 minutes laying out their plan. And at the end of the hearing, the city council said, we've listened to you, the community, speak about how this is a bad idea. We listened to you for three hours. They're the only ones with a plan. So we're going to say yes to what they want to do. So they gave them the building. And a year later, an article came out in the Redding, California newspaper, right on the, right on the cover. Uh, Bethel Church saves Redding, California. And it was the story of the civic building. I'm not saying that we move without revelation. But it is time for us as a church to begin to come together and say, how can we bless our city? How can we look upon this town of sundown with the Lord's eyes? What does he want to do here? God's after his own people's hearts. I think we've reached a point in history where he's not really wanting a time in it anymore. He wants to bring cities. He wants to establish his glory over a place. And that's the prophecy that we've received, isn't it? That we would be a city on a hill, shining with the glory of God. That starts with us just seeking to bless. That it becomes a consuming thought within our day. We fill our days with meals, 
getting the kids to school, or getting to work, or all of the things that we have to do. And they take thought, but those thoughts precedent the things that should be at the forefront of our mind. And I can't really speak to this because I'm not a father, I'm not a parent. But just talking last night with Jeremy as I sat with him in the hospital, the heart of service that we want our kids to learn, the people that they, we want them to be, doesn't come because we serve them. It comes because we serve the people around us. It comes because we give our time, and it's good to have them in baseball and soccer and to spend time with them doing it, but the things we want them to learn come not because we got them to the match on time, but because we missed a match to help someone mow their lawn that couldn't mow their lawn. It's how we change a city. It's how we change the things around us. Our view has got to become one that is less just like, it's us five, or it's us four, and I'm going to take care of these. And, and we're going to look insular and take care of ourselves. But one of, we're going to look outward together, as families and as a church, because there are people in sundown that need to be blessed so badly. And who's going to do it? Who's going to do it with the supernatural power of the Lord? If not us, then no one. And he wants this city, people. He wants this city. But first he wants our hearts. I just encourage you, in small things, make sure you get your time with him every day. And I'm speaking to myself. We've been so busy lately, it's hard to get that time in the morning. It's hard to get up in the morning when I have quiet time. But we have got to get the time with him. Because it's when we learn his thoughts. It's, it's the time we learn to see as he sees. And hear as he hears. To discern his voice among all other voices. We have to have that time. And the other is stop worrying about your comfort zone. He is your comfort zone. Walking in the things he has for you. It is the most comfortable place. Joyful place, peaceful place, and wonderful place you'll ever be. Seeing the smile on someone's face simply because he told you to tell them that he saw who they are. 